Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Are you struggling? Do you need some happiness help? Do you need some help with your happiness? You know what I mean. Are you having trouble achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Get started in less than 24 hours. Get in touch with a therapist in a safe online environment. Schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in traffic or in an uncomfortable waiting room. Yeah, this is a service available worldwide. It's a great service. BetterHelp Online Counseling. Licensed professional counselors who are specialized in things like depression, stress, anxiety, grief, LGBTQ matters, trauma, relationships, whatever it is. Anything you share is confidential. This is a convenient, professional, and affordable service. It's not a crisis line. Best of all, you can get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Join over 800,000 people who are taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash other PPL. All right? Okay. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. Welcome back to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California, and it is nice to be with you. I have Susan Choi on the program today. Her novel, Trust Exercise, is available now from Henry Holt in trade paperback. Trust Exercise won the 2019 National Book Award for Fiction. Great time meeting Susan over the transom. Great conversation. That is coming up momentarily. I should make a note of the fact that uh, Susan and I spoke, and, and this is where it gets a little bit ridiculous because I have to parse the different layers of social upheaval that we find ourselves dealing with in the United States of America in 2020. But Susan Choi and I spoke during the pandemic, but pre-George Floyd in this little window of time. And uh, it was just an excellent time to talk with her. And I'm very pleased to share that conversation with you. It's coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Grey Wolf Press, publisher of Post-Colonial Love Poem, the new collection from Natalie Diaz. This is the highly anticipated follow-up to When My Brother Was an Aztec, which won an American Book Award. The New York Times Book Review says, quote, Post-Colonial Love Poem is no doubt one of the most important poetry releases in years, one to applaud 
for its considerable demonstration of skill, its resistance to dominant perspectives, and its light wrought of desire. End quote. Postcolonial Love Poem by Natalie Diaz, available now from Grey Wolf Press. So, yeah, the podcast is back. I'm going to be back in the routine. I'm happy to be back in the routine. And I'm happy to share this conversation with Susan Choi today. I should mention that there will, in the days ahead, be episodes that deal explicitly with the cultural moment that we're in. I'm going to have some guests on and we're going to get into it. It's just a matter of getting schedules synced up. But please do know that that is in the works. As well, there will be episodes that were recorded prior to all this. It's just the nature of the beast. You know, I have some in the can that I will be sharing with you. And, uh, you know, if, if they are missing conversation about uh, the, the, the things that have happened over the past, you know, 10 days to two weeks, that is why. So uh, really appreciate you guys tuning in. I hope you're doing well out there. I hope if you've been out in the streets protesting, you're taking good care of yourselves. Um, you know, it's just incredible times that we're living through. And keep it up. Stay engaged. And, uh, you know, let's vote in November, shall we? My guest today is Susan Choi. Her novel, Trust Exercise, is available now from Henry Holt in trade paperback. It is the winner of the 2019 National Book Award for Fiction. Just a wonderful time meeting her and talking with her and very pleased to get to add this conversation to the library of conversations that I have been building on this program for the past decade. Um, just one of our finest authors. Here she is, folks. This is Susan Choi, and her novel, One More Time, is called Trust Exercise. I mean, I've been home. Um, I've been thinking a lot about all the stuff that I still have, you know, like my family's healthy. I finished my semester. I teach fiction writing and um, finished my semester online, but, you know, finished my semester, had a job, still have a job. So that's great. Um, my kids are in online school, which is, you know, it's a drag, relatively speaking, but I don't know. We're, we're, we're good. Um, we, we feel, we feel really fortunate. Our neighborhood is, is kind of a lovely place to be even, even in this weird dark time, you know, like we go out for walks, our neighbors open their windows and blast music at seven o'clock to thank the essential workers. It's, I don't know, it's, it's been a, it's been like a weirdly tranquil time actually. Although, you know, with an undercurrent of dread, confusion like uncertainty about the future but you know within the moment it's been it's been all right yeah i kind of feel the same way and i i've had this i've had i guess conflicting theories bouncing around in my head about all of this but sometimes i'm able to convince myself well first of all that writers are maybe uniquely well adapted for a pandemic and a shelter in place <laughs> since so many of us are used to solitude to maybe an unusual degree and uh, you know, for a working writer to be cloistered inside one's apartment or house or something is not necessarily the strangest set of circumstances. Um, so yeah, I, do you feel that? Do you feel like, well, maybe I'm, I'm ready for this or, or able to handle this better than somebody who's used to being 
like out in the world and like really super busy and engaged and you know like working on the stock market floor or something <laughs> right right i mean yeah in certain ways i totally agree i think that um i think that uh, you know i i think writers you're right we're used to we're used to having like a long solitary work day right so we're we're used to not having like the office camaraderie where we go in we see people um so we're not feeling deprived of that i have to say like for me one of the things that has always really supported my my solitude as a writer has been being able to see people like at the end of my writing day and that i really miss you know i like i feel that uh i feel that like shagging of the spirits almost every day at like five or six where I just think like, ah, you know, it's still a day where I'm at home. Um, There's no, there's not going to be any kind of going out to see a movie or meet with a friend or, you know, there's not going to be any of that like um, social, social experience that you used to reward yourself with after like a long solitary day, because it's going to be like a long solitary evening too. So I think that that's as a writer, something that I've had to, adjust to but but yeah like there's been a lot of there's been a lot of peace in this quarantine for me like a lot of like time to read a book I I, it's ridiculous how I don't know if you have if you have this problem but I constantly like puzzle over the problem of when to read yes like as as writers it's really important for us to read and I can never figure out when that's supposed to happen I'm like I can't read I won't go through all the reasons why I can't read it like every hour of the day, but I can never figure out in my normal life when to get any reading done. And that's been a thing that the pandemic has, has gifted me with. It's like a lot of extra hours in the day where I'm like, ah, I can read in this hour, you know, in between figuring out what's for lunch and what's for dinner. Right. I cannot, I mean, you are like, you're um, speaking to me very much right now because I have read, like to an unusually high degree. And I've been reading like big novels and enjoying it and finding time. I think especially early in the day, for some reason, I feel like if I do it early, it's better for me because if I, whenever I try to read before bed, I just pass out. That's, Oh yeah, me too. That's how it goes. I just wake up with like a book on my face. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, I have like a, yeah, a haystack next to my bed of like reading material that, (laughs) that I never finished. That's like, next to my bed. Right. No, I hear you. So it's been, that's been a good part of it. I mean, and I know, and I should also like, just, just to put an asterisk next to this for both of us, like, I think, uh, it's obvious that there's a lot of, uh, difficulty and suffering happening with regard to coronavirus. So sometimes I can feel a little odd to be like, by the way, I've just been relishing fiction lately, but I think you have to be able to find the good in the bad too. You know, it can't just be constantly, dwelling on all the misery that this thing has brought upon us. And I think, um, hopefully that's obvious, but I'm going to flag it just in case. And I I would say too, you know, something you were talking about earlier with regard to missing that sort of, uh, social reward at the end of the day, going to a movie, going out to have a drink with a friend. I was talking to a a writer friend of mine. I kind of passed her in the street. I was like riding my bike around the neighborhood with my dog and she was out walking and I, I, I've been making this joke, especially with writer friends. I was like, yeah, you know, it's kind of, kind of well adapted to this solitude is good. And 
she's like, yeah, she's like, but I miss, you know, I miss walking with my friends or hanging with my friends. That's where I get all my best ideas. And I think there's something, Mm -hmm. there's something to that, like the juice of having, um, you know, social interaction or good conversation with friends, especially in person. Uh, I think you do lose something or is that the case for you? Oh yeah, definitely. It's definitely the case. I mean, I just, it's, you know, there are other sources of ideas for me. We all have multiple sources, but it's like, there's a whole dimension of just like casual, casual everyday contact with other human beings, you know, that isn't part of our lives right now. Um, For those of us who aren't working in essential services and for those of us who are, there's nothing casual about it. Right. So I guess none of us have that kind of casual contact with others that we used to have. And I, a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff that happens in my head happens because I ran into somebody, had a conversation with them about something that wasn't on my mind, you know? I mean, so it's like that whole source of mental and emotional stimulation, just kind of being, being cut off for the time is, yeah. I mean, you know, for me, like, unlike your friend, I would say that I also, um, it's balanced because I also find that like, a lot of my ideas kind of come to me when I'm alone and I'm alone so much more now than usual that I've actually like, I've noticed that like there's another part of my brain that's kind of more on, you know what I mean? Like there's things happening in this other part of my brain where I'm like, Whoa, that's a thought that I had like five years ago and totally forgot about. And now like in this new kind of more arid set of social conditions like there's stuff kind of bubbling up for me that um often gets drowned out otherwise so like you know checks and balances i guess that's not quite the right image but like you know it's a balance like there there there's different sources of, of thinking and and some of my like some of my sources that i haven't been tuned into for a long time are kind of coming back online a little bit more what's the quiet you know, it's the pace. I think it's the pace of life. And then you talk about this space that you've found or that I've found to read. Um, you know, it has, I think it has something to do with the speed of things. And then also maybe the way in which it has permitted uh, a kind of quiet that isn't usually possible or doesn't feel possible or as possible. Um, and when, when things get still, you know, and quiet, uh, like they have been, maybe, you know, the parts of us that work on that work best or work on writing come back online, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And at the same time, it all, it all feels like it's fluctuating a lot and you know, there's no, there's no set pattern. Like things are a lot quieter, but they're a lot less quiet, at least where I am than they were four weeks ago, you know? And I've noticed that change. I'm like, huh, you know, this, the the quality of the quiet keeps changing, getting a little less quiet. Um, and you know, it's funny, like noticing, well, I think the overall quiet helps you notice patterns within the quiet. So I guess, I guess on balance things are quieter. Yes. But also there's just all sorts of change and adjustment that's constantly happening. Like for a while I was really on top of my email. I don't know if you had this, but like, I was really on top of my email Um, and, and even able to be on top of it and allocate it a much smaller portion of my thinking. Right. And, um, and now it's 
not the case anymore. And I was like, what happened? Did I get less good at dealing with email? Or is there actually more email? Because everyone's sitting at home. And I actually think there's like, I think there's more. Like there's some ways in which like the lack of the social contact is rebounding into other realms where I just feel like the email thing is blowing up for me now where I'm like, oh my God, my email's more out of control than it is like at the height of normal life. So I just feel like all of our patterns are all over the place, you know, and yeah. constantly like re, you know, readjusting. Well, yeah, no, I think like what you said about like noticing, like, noticing how the quiet is kind of recalibrating itself. Like there's, there was the initial quiet, which for me in Los Angeles was glorious because I could get on my bike and ride around the city and it was like Mad Max, like the traffic. Yeah. It was just no gone. one out there. It was yeah. Gone. And, uh, I would imagine in, in Brooklyn, you know, when you're noticing how it's, uh, like differentiating itself, it has to do with people on the sidewalks. I guess traffic is a thing too there, but it's more street level. Um, everybody in LA is in their cars, but I have noticed the natives getting restless, um, for sure. You know, you can feel it. Yeah. Start, you can feel it starting to get more active. There are more people lining up for the farmer's market or whatever it is. And, um, you know, I just think people, I really do think it's just, it's an, unna an unnatural set of circumstances for people. And I think, uh, it's difficult for most all of us. And I think there's an element of impatience to it that, uh, we have to work against it's, you know, I, I, I want to be understanding of it. There's also a part of me that's like, guys, we just got to chill for the good of public health, you know, like, yeah, it's not going to be yeah. normal. Um, and then another thing wow. that you, another thing that you were saying, uh, about email ramping up, what came to mind for me is the, uh, the fact that I've had so many more meaningful phone conversations during the pandemic than I normally would and am more receptive to my phone ringing than I think I was pre-pandemic, where like before I think the shelter in place went into effect, if my phone rang, it was always like, oh God, like, what is it? Like who died? <laughs> and now right. I, feel, I feel like people are maybe more apt to want to just chat on the phone or do a Zoom call or whatever, because that's, that's what we've got. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. It's like this weird new space-time relationship that we all have where, you know, it's like, there's more time, space is meaningless, like all of these all of these ways that we are accustomed to interacting with the world have vanished. And then either there's new ways, like Zoom is it's so funny to me that Zoom is just like instant cultural shift. You know, like overnight Zoom became a ubiquitous thing. Everyone does it. Like I think you have to be under six months old to like not be zooming with someone at this point. Um, everyone uses it as a verb. Um, and then, yeah, other, like you're right, like other kind of forgotten modes, like talking on the phone have kind of returned where it's like, oh yeah, remember when we used to do this? Yeah, like it's like a renaissance. Remember when we used, to, yeah, we used to be on the phone all the time. Like remember when we used to call our best friend and like fall asleep talking on the phone, speaking of falling asleep, doing things. So yeah, it's so interesting, but I agree with you, you know, in terms of your observations of ramping up in LA, definitely the same here. And yeah, we, we have all, we have all the kinds of traffic. We have cars too. And like, there are way more of them on the streets. And, you know, I also have a bike and love riding. And in the early, early 
days of this new reality, um, felt like I was the only person on earth sometimes, yeah. you know, out there riding my bike around. And, uh, now I'm like, wow, it's almost like nothing's different anymore. Like traffic, uh, congestion, you know, you go for a socially distanced walk with somebody and it's kind of awkward because there's so many other people walking around. Like, yeah, New York is definitely like ready to, to have some aspect of its social life back. Um, although I think at the same time we have been really patient here because the, the tangible, the tangible effects of our lockdown have been so gratifying. You know what I mean? Like I think people in the city are really pretty tuned in to at least the way we flatten the curve here. Um, you know, whereas like nationally, the whole message is such a disaster, which oh we God. don't even need to talk about, right. but at least locally, locally, there's a really, there's been a really strong cause effect feeling, you know, where it's like the average person is like, yeah, we're making a difference. We're actually like, we're sacrificing and seeing results. And so I think that that has helped a lot yeah. with keeping people, you know, keeping people like in the effort. Well, especially in a place with that kind of population density, I mean, you sort of have to, you have to uh, be accepting of the reality in a place like that. It's all around you. I mean, New York has been particularly hard hit. You'd have to be pretty obstinate to not see it or to will yourself to think otherwise. And uh, I'd like to think that there are some deep lessons. I, I'm kind of of two minds on this. Like, I think the more idealistic part of me is like, wow, you know, something about this, there's going to be some gold that we can mine from this. There are going to be some changes, like maybe subtle, maybe not so subtle that are going to happen as a result of this. And there are going to be some, some good things that result and that we take with us. And then there can be the more cynical side of me. That's like, you know what, as soon as we find a vaccine or some drug cocktail that can uh, mitigate against the worst of this thing, everybody's just going to go go right back to the way we were and maybe on steroids, you know, it's going to be like everything in overdrive. And I imagine probably it'll be somewhere in the middle, but did you ever find yourself thinking along those lines? Like maybe this will be something that makes us better. Oh yeah, definitely. I thought that a lot, especially in the, in the first month, I think the first month was very sort of emotionally, um, I don't know, like emotionally sort of open, tremulous, kind of fragile period, at least for me, where it's like, you know, uh, there was a lot of like, for me, resurgence in confidence in our common humanity, you know, and I still have a lot of confidence in our common humanity. I don't mean to sound snarky when I say that, but, you know, I think as, as like, as the really, really stubbornly persistent, not great things in our culture, you know, one by one reared their heads again. Um, I got more skeptical, like you're saying, you know, it's like at the very beginning, there was this real sense, like we now talk about it as if it's been years and not like a couple months, but, you know, back in March, there was this sense of like unanimous, unanimous agreement for once in, in, in like recent memory, it felt as if nationwide people were like, we need to do something. We need to kind of do roughly the same thing. We need to do it together and we need to do it for the good of all. And, you know, that was before, um, 
this whole debate now between, you know, economic health versus the health of individual humans became so sharp and so ugly. And, you know, before the messaging from the top really went around the bend, which I feel like now I'm like, you know, it's gone around the bend. Like there aren't even bends left for the messaging to go around. You know, it's like, (laughs) are these, these like, figures of speech don't really work anymore because you're like, what is this? Like a corkscrew pattern? Like it's, it's so, <laughs> it's a double helix. Just, it's a double helix. I mean, it's, it's so, it's so psychotically cracked that you're, that you're like, well, it's actually a work of genius because the effect is that everyone tunes out, everyone tunes out, you know, everybody's just like, I'm turning off. I can't take it anymore. You know? Um, so before all that started happening, I really did feel like, you know, we're going to be better for this. Now, you know, I mean, I totally agree with you. It's like, it's probably something in the middle or it's probably, it's just, just the way things are in this world now, which is there'll be some, I think some things will be better and some things will be a lot worse and some things it's going to be really hard to tell for maybe a couple generations. Mm. Um, you know, I think that our kids are going to be very, very different adults than they would have been if this hadn't happened. I don't think any of them will, you know, and we'll never know. Of course, it's like an amazing global experiment with no control. Like there is no, (laughs) there is no set of kids on the globe who aren't affected in some way by this crisis. And so there's no way to know in the future, but I just feel like, you know, this generation, I don't know what it's going to mean for them, except that they're just not, they're not on the same trajectory that they were on mentally, emotionally, materially. Um, and that'll take, it'll take a while sort of to understand yeah, what I that th- means. I think about that a lot. I have two kids and it's like, it's, it's unnatural for children to be, it's unnatural for human beings to be isolated, but especially young children, my, you know, elementary school age and any age trying to sit at home every day and zoom with their friends and not have traditional social interactions. The only thing that I find gives me solace is this notion that it's all kids. It's not like it's just my kids. Like, uh, you know, we're all in the Mm -hmm. same boat and maybe with the exception of like the children of Antarctica or something (laughs) who will be mostly untouched by this. But I, I think, you know, it's the world over, just like you say. And, Hopefully there's something, uh, you know, uh, what's the word redeeming in that? Like there's something that we can, there's something we can fall back on or something that will make it, um, not likely to isolate one particular subset of children. You know, it's something that they can all share in common and hopefully, um, respond to together and have to, right. you know, relate to together. But, uh, I want right. to, I want to, it, de- oh, yeah, it deepens through. their inequities too. I mean, but that's just obvious of everything, you know, yeah. every aspect of this, it's like, you know, we're all in it together. And yet at the same time, like all of the divisions between us are deepened, like just in terms of, you know, just material circumstances. I mean, anyway, you were, you were saying though, you're saying possibly that we should start talking about my book. <laughs> yes. No, I want to, uh, I want to congratulate you. First of all, um, I want to congratulate oh, you on winning the national book award. That must've been exciting. 
It was exciting. Thank you. Thanks. You know, it was exciting. It was, um, it was, it was absolutely great. And it's funny because like, as that, as that day receded, you know, I, I kind of basked in it as you do. I mean, I always will. And I, and, um, but now, now that the world is turned upside down, it's, it's, it's a really different memory. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's a complete, it's so surreal. Like initially it was just a surreal memory because it was, it was an awesome thing that had happened. And I was like, wow, that really happened. That was so great. (laughs) And now, you know, now there's a certain amount of melancholy where I'm like, wow, that happened. That was really great. And, you know, will there be a national book award ceremony this year for 2020 authors? Will they be, will they get the same, will they get the same experience? My guess is no. They'll be on zoom. You know, they'll be on zoom and it sucks. I mean, and again, like, obviously I feel like you and I keep wanting to repeat these caveats. Like these are champagne problems, right? Like I understand that, you know, um, the thing, the things that are, the things that are really difficult right now in our world do not include there not being a national book award ceremony. (laughs) Like, like let's, let's just make clear that I fully recognize that. But if I can just speak of things like in their own context, right. Without, you know, like understanding that we're not making comparisons across human experience or just speaking of something in the context of the national book awards. What was so great about it was the collective experience. Like when I think back on that week, which was exciting and fun, um, the highlights of it are always moments that involve lots of other people nearby. You know what I mean? Like there's a wonderful event that happens before the big ceremony. It's the night before where all of the finalists read. And um, it's at the new school or it's been at the new school for years in their big auditorium. It's open to the public. It's totally free. Big crowd comes. All the finalists meet. You know, we all get a cool medal, which is really fun. I brought my kids with me because I knew that the award ceremony itself was just going to tax their patients completely. Um, but, you know, everybody like hugs and meets each other. You're all in one room. And then and then we all go we all go into the auditorium, sit in, sit in a big long row together, and and then in, in groups by category, get up and read to this crowd of people who, who are interested, you know, people who just like books and like reading, and, and it's like a free evening of literary entertainment uh, for those who like that kind of thing. And I just loved that night, you know, that was the night before the ceremony, um, and that's just the kind of thing that like we don't have right now. Like we don't have hordes of people crowding together into an auditorium to all enjoy something at the same time in the same physical space. And yeah. uh and like music. And I, I keep... think I think of concerts, you know. Yeah. Like, wow, like that entire there are certain aspects of our lives and certain parts of the culture and parts of the business world where this thing has completely foreclosed on any possibility of it uh, happening. Sports is another one, you know, live sporting events. Yeah, where there's no substitute. Yeah, there's no substitute. And and literature is lucky in a way, right? Because it's like literature, first of all, it's always been kind of a niche corner of the culture, but 
you know, literature has this primary dimension, which involves like, you know, individual people interacting with individual books. So that's going great right now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like that's happening. Um, and so for us in literature, it's like a special treat when we, like you said, at the very beginning, when we writers get to like congregate, it's exotic. Um, but our, our world still exists. Our world of like making and reading books. And, but when, yeah, you're right. Music, sports, like live theater, like so many, so many other aspects of our culture where there is no Zoom <laughs> equivalent, really. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of creative answers to it, but, but yeah. And we need that. I think as people, um, we need those occasions to gather. Like that's what you were observing about LA. Like people can't, we can't kind of deal with this for, for indefinitely. Yeah. Like it, I, humans, humans are social. Right. Right. And I, I want to, uh, and I'm, I promise you we're going to get to your book. I have, I have a ton to ask you about it and talk to you, um, you know, in regards to it, but I want to posit a theory to you that I've been positing to a lot of writer friends of mine just to see what you think. And what I've been wondering at is whether or not this pandemic experience and the shelter in place and and the intensity of the psychological and emotional aspects of it is going to occasion like a, a, any kind of golden age or concentrated uh, you know uh, production of great art, great literature like. I like to imagine that right now, I know there are plenty of people that I've heard talking about how they're having a hard time concentrating or they're trying to homeschool and it's just impossible to read or write. Like there are some people I think who fall into that category. I have also talked to people on this show or just, you know, friends of mine who have said like, I've never been more focused. I've just like the way that I'm dealing with it is I'm diving into work. Like, do you feel that at all? Do you have any thoughts along those lines? Do you think that there could be like in, you know, 10 years from now, we might look back and be like, wow, like there were a lot of masterpieces written when people were in quarantine. Hmm. I don't think so, but, but, but well, let me, let me, let me back up. I mean, first of all, I feel like, like what I said earlier about patterns constantly changing. I'm, I'm agog at these people who are like incredibly focused. I don't get it. I, I do feel like I have had moments or maybe even like intervals lasting more than a moment of enormous focus during this quarantine period where things, certain things click into place and I'm like, Oh, something just clicked into place. It's not sustained for me at all. I have way more time that I spend being like scattered all over the map where I'm just like, I don't even know how to keep track of the radically lessened number of things I have to do. Like I have so many fewer things to do and I can't even do them. So it's a mix for me, but I, I really feel like um, I do think that there's going to be a huge impact in terms of our artistic and cultural output. But I feel like it's not going to be point for point in a way that it's going to be easy to identify. Like I don't necessarily believe that there's going to be this, um, you know, like, there's a blizzard and there's a baby boom, right? Like there's that old joke, everybody's stuck inside. Like, I don't think there's going to be like a quarantine and an art boom where, you know, in X number of years, we're going to see all the amazing quarantine books and 
artworks, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to evidence itself more gradually. You know what I mean? Like, I actually do think that we're all being rewired right now, like rewired in ways we don't even understand. Um, I think our brains are being changed. And in some ways, those changes are going to be positive. And in some ways, they might not be. But, you know, I, I, I feel like this is like a global, a global, like, cognitive psychological event that's going to have like a lot of um, outcome to it in art and culture. But I don't, I feel like it's, it's not going to roll out in terms of like, Oh, I was stuck inside for, you know, 12 weeks in 2020 and I made this opera. You know what I mean? (laughs) I I feel like it's, I just feel like it's going to be less. It's just, it's, you know, sort of in the way that like, I've always, I've always sort of been fascinated by like the war, um, the war years of the early 20th century. It's like, you know, you had two world wars and then more wars. And, and, you know, there's these generations that lived through this period of global warfare and their way of approaching the world. I feel like it must be so radically different from our way of approaching it, but you can't, you can't like trace it back and go, you know, um, oh, here's this amazing work of art that came out of the war years. Like there's tons of those. Like I just read one the other day, actually a book that I've been meaning to read for years and book written during World War II that was astonishing. But but I feel like that rewiring of, of a whole, you know, generation or even more than one generation of, of humans, it like the results emerge in these ways that are hard, harder to measure. And I think that's what we're going to have. Hmm. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So speaking of rewiring, like how, how's this for an elegant segue? Uh, adolescence, <laughs> <laughs> a time when I think we get uh, rewired and our brains are especially pliable. Um, and obviously this is, uh, you know, a central concern of your book. Um, you know, I, I finished it last week and something that it was, you know, it really makes, I think any reader think about is the lingering effects of childhood and the ways in which, you know, even like micro events, things that we might not necessarily even hold onto all that tightly can imprint themselves on us and show up at unexpected times or impact us in ways that we might not even see. And then, you know, to say nothing of the bigger 
um, you know, more intense experiences that we have, which, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I still, and I've, I've sort of, uh, lamented this on the show before, either in conversation or in the monologues, like I am still capable of feeling such intense shame for stupid bullshit that I did in like eighth grade. <laughs> like I can't forgive myself. Yeah. Like, I don't know why I can't move on. And then, you know, if you are, um, unfortunate to have, uh, really difficult stuff happen to you in your adolescence, uh, you know, obviously that's gonna, that's gonna leave a mark and it's going to be stuff that you can spend an entire lifetime working through. And I guess like, I'm wondering what got you started down this road? Like, what can you trace it to? Like I, you know, you do a little bit of sleuthing and it sounds like you went to a performing arts high school in Houston. Is that right? Um, mm -hmm. So you have some experience, you know, in a world similar to the world of your novel, but can you just talk about the origin story? Like what got you thinking along these lines and what started to make this uh, flower like in your, in your creative imagination? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was so many things and so many things. It's like a, it's like a, an accumulation. I feel like that's the theme of my answers to you today. Every single, every single thing I say is sort of, you know, a variation on you know, there are lots of different elements. It's hard to, but uh, you know, the different elements were, I think partly um, I totally agree with you that adolescence and the teenage years I think are like the most, well, I don't know if you said exactly this, but I, I think that those are like the most impactful years of our lives. Maybe. I mean, I have no proof. I'm not, I'm like not a sociologist or a biologist or a psychologist or any kind of scientist, obviously, but it just intuitively has always seemed to me like that period of time where you're coming of age to use the old phrase is like obviously if you're coming of age like the, the things that happen to you during this period of transition when you're not quite a child and you're not quite an adult but you're trying to find your way in between those two spaces which are really well defined in our culture and adolescence and the teenagers are really poorly defined in our culture i think it's like no one knows how to view these people who are in this age range um in part because it's transitional, right? Like how do we parent people this age? Like I have a couple of people this age that I'm trying to parent. It's really extremely difficult. Um, you have teenagers? Those part yeah, I have, a, I have a 15 year old and then I have a, I have a 12 year old who's almost 13. So not technically a teen, but Getting very there. much a, an adolescent in spirit. Um, and, you know, very much grappling with all of these issues of, you know, um, I need support, encouragement, protection. I need you to leave me the F alone. You know, right. I, I don't know what I need right now. <laughs> and, um, and so I've always, I've always kind of, you know, been really interested in that period of life. Like not just as I experienced it, but in general. Um, I also teach and I think that, you know, being a teacher has made me really, um, really like keenly aware as, as a parent, you're also keenly aware of like how much that relationship between teachers and students has evolved since I was a student. So like all these norms of that teacher student relationship, like have radically, radically, radically shifted. Um, how so? And 
Well, you know, like I would say that they've they've shifted alongside all all sorts of other norms. Like they've shifted alongside, you know, all of the other thinking that now goes under the Me Too rubric, but that like precedes the Me Too rubric about like what what sorts of abuses of power um can we identify like what what qualifies as, as an abuse of power and what's just a oh come on oh get over it oh you're fine um i think that you know in the same way that um me too kind of brought into focus like a lot of a lot of much longer term conversations around like what actually is um what is sort of abuse and predation and you know uh, I mean, let's just give an example. Here's here's an example from like recently in our culture, although the, the previous era <laughs> before the current pandemic era. Um, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings, which took place as my book was coming into galleys. So like the first kind of publicity event for my book happened the day after the Kavanaugh hearings started, I think, or like they were really close together in time. And you know, the, the cultural shift from a period of time when a young Christine Blase Ford would, would go home and keep her mouth shut about what had happened to her. Tell really no one. Because I remember that period of time. Stuff happens and you just think, well, I guess that was my fault and I'd better be quiet about it. Um, to now when we are able to say, like, Look, you know, this is this is an instance of of abuse, and this is not not something that somebody should either a blame themselves for or b pretend didn't happen because it, it was a non-event. So I think like those norms have shifted a lot in the classroom, right? To get back to what I was trying to say, and um, things that might have happened between a teacher and a student in say the '80s when I was in school that that would have seemed. Um, not normal necessarily, but not actionable. I got to say, if, you know, I, if we look at them now, we're like, what the, do you know what I mean? I, I feel like I'm being very long winded. No, what, no. what I mean is that I think, I think we've become, we've become both more sensitive as a culture and also more confused maybe about what our role is in, in, in trying to deal with these events. Well, I'll tell you, when you're talking about how things have changed, I am thinking of my public high school in Indianapolis, where I went to high school. Um, it's like one of these big Midwestern suburban public high schools. I don't know if that's like a familiar, if that paints any kind of familiar picture, but um, <laughs> like there were, <laughs> like the, the amount of sexual deviance um, among teachers and administrators not that it was, you know, I don't want to overstate it. It wasn't like every teacher and every administrator was some kind of uh, pervert or something. But there was a teacher who was openly dating a junior in high school. Everybody knew it. I, I, remember, exactly. seeing, I remember seeing them at like Blockbuster Video and being like, hey, guys, you know, like they were dating. He was 30. She was 16. Exactly. Uh, yeah, then, it was exa exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that sort of stuff. And like, and like everybody, all the teachers knew it. I remember there was a teacher in my high school who... He, he flirted very overtly with uh, like pretty girls who were like seniors. And then literally like a week after graduation, he would find a way to call them or something and be like, do you want to go get a, you know, go get a bite to eat? And he was very much like trying to hit on high school girls, but he kind of was playing it safe, I guess, or something, you know, like the, 
the legal right. the legalistic approach and then there was a female teacher who was sort of notorious for having relationships with students and i think back on this now and i'm like my god like what were people thinking like times have really changed and i you know thank goodness but it's definitely a different world and the world that you describe in your book uh is familiar to me on that level it is also familiar to me when I think about the, like we had a pretty strong drama department at my school. It wasn't a school exclusively devoted to the uh, performing arts, but uh, that was important, you know, in my public high school. And I remember that particular uh, like subset of the student population being kind of cloistered and like very intense. And I, I want to talk to you about that. Like the world of high school uh, in general can feel that way. You know, these like you talk about the, uh, the relationships between teachers and students and the relationships uh, among students themselves and how when you're that age it really does feel like the whole world you know like everything that yeah. hap everything that happens within those walls just has this kind of uh you know intensity and and going to a, a performing arts high school and being among i don't know dramatic people <laughs> like do you think the intensity was higher do you did it? Ha I mean, did it really leave uh, a mark on you? Were, were you that way as a as a student? Well, I mean, it left it left positive marks on me. You know, I had a really positive experience. Um, happily, you know, my school wasn't Kappa, and my experience wasn't the experience of those characters. But at the same time, my experience was full of exactly what you're talking about—that kind of intensity of. Um, emotion and focus and sort of like yeah this like sense of a cloister like not really not really like knowing or caring about the world outside right which is it there these are dangerous conditions if if something goes wrong you know what i mean and like happily for me and and for my school and, and for my experience um all of the positives of that sort of a situation prevailed, you know, which is that like in intense camaraderie, you know, this intense sense of like being special and doing something special, um, you know, being different from regular kids and, and, you know, pledging your, pledging your dedication to something exalted, like, like the theater, you know, we were, we were so, we were so like, passionate and naive and and it was wonderful you know um but that could also like go south really easily and i think like your point about how cloistered it is is really an important one because you know it's just what you were saying about like your high school and the fact that those relationships were really normalized it's like that happens when you don't have any frame of reference right and i feel like in high school we don't have a very large frame of reference like the high school is our frame where we're like, this is the world, you know? And if that's happening in your world, if your teachers are routinely dating students, then you're going to, you're going to internalize the idea that that's normal. That that's a totally normal relationship. And, um, I think that was really interesting to me was like the, the, the potential for really like kind of wonderful life changing stuff in that period of time emotionally and, and the potential for, kind of negatively life-changing stuff. So I want to talk to you about Mr. Kingsley, uh, who is the drama teacher. You know, he's the, he's the teacher of the, of the main characters of your story. And 
he feels like such a rich character to me. Uh, I got to say, I was imagining Ben Kingsley for like obvious reasons. For some reason, like his first. <laughs> oh my God, he'd be great. He'd right? be like a great Mr. Kingsley, yeah. I, I was going to say, like he could, you know, I feel like if he shaved his head or something, this could really work. But um, that character felt like very familiar to me, like almost as an archetype. Like it felt like the, the drama teacher at my school, like an echo of it anyway. And it's just so perfectly drawn. Um, and I think that most of us had a teacher who was kind of larger than life in high school, whether it was a drama teacher or some other teacher. But it's just interesting to me the way that teachers can occupy this seat of power in the world of students, um, especially like a cloistered world. Like if you're in the drama you know, if you're in the dramatic arts school or you're in the drama department and that's really where you spend your time and build your social relationships, if there is like a powerful charismatic figure, like it's a lot of power in a small world. And I, I guess, I don't know. I guess I just find it fascinating. It makes me reflect on the role that certain teachers played in my life when I was growing up and how outsized it felt. And also how often they sort of, like, it felt like the teachers in retrospect really kind of got off on it. Like they, it was, it was their entire world too. It's like they were the president yeah. or something, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a lot of power in a, in a small little bubble. It is a lot of power. Yeah. I mean, I can't even tell you the number of people who have, have the number of people from all sorts of different parts of this country who've told me after reading this book, this was my drama teacher. You know, so that there is something really archetypal, I think, about this figure. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of power to wield and it's it's really understandable to me actually how it might be intoxicating for a teacher because, you know, one of the things that like when you asked your question about like what what drew me into this material, which I feel like I just drifted off into some sideways answer. I don't even know if I answered that question, but one to return to it briefly, one of the things that drew me to it was I think teenagers are really interesting and um and really kind of uniquely I don't know. I, I'm a teacher also. I love working with students in the sort of like high school and college realm. Um they're so smart. They're so, they're so passionate about what interests them. They're just figuring out kind of how to connect who they are to the rest of the world. And I don't know, I learned something from my students, like every time I interact with them, um, there's something very alive about people that age and I think there's a tendency I'm not saying it's like widespread but I certainly like you know I'm a middle-aged person and I certainly frequently encounter this kind of attitude of of you know scorn or condescension or just lack of interest toward younger people and I'm always like I don't get it <laughs> like that I don't actually sort of grasp this idea that younger people like aren't as sort of worthy of, of, 
of attention and study as as people my age. I, I find them sometimes much more worthy of attention and study. And so I can totally relate to somebody um, finding finding it really appealing to be admired by young people. It's it's appealing. Of course it's appealing. Young people are are, are very cool. <laughs> and um and so I think as a teacher it's really dangerous. And that was what I thought about a lot with Mr. Kingsley was that, you know, there's this really dangerous temptation, I think, to kind of um feed on the admiration of younger people. And to get lazy and to get careless about how you're relating to them. I think you have to be so careful as a teacher, like um, to not misuse that position. You're always in a position of greater power in it. Like it doesn't matter if, if, if your 16 year old girlfriend likes the same video at Blockbuster that you like as a 30 year old, that doesn't make you equals, you know, like that doesn't make your relationship. Okay. And I think, I think as teachers, there's, there's, it's, there's a lot of peril. And so I wanted Mr. Kingsley to be someone who was um, charismatic to the reader. I didn't want him to be a two-dimensional villain. I didn't want him to be this kind of like pathetic figure. I wanted it to make sense that he, I wanted it to make sense that he got a lot, a lot out of his position as a teacher in a positive way. But he's he goes too far, mm. you know. Do you know what I mean? He like he lo- kind of loses sight of his power over these students, and he misuses it. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, I think there's that. I think there's like you can kind of get drunk on power and lose perspective, and and maybe just get blind to the outside world. You know, things get so insular that you sort of uh, lose perspective. I think too, when I reflect on my own, you know, adolescence and high school experience, that oftentimes when there were teachers who crossed boundaries or behaved in ways that would never fly today, certainly it was due to a really pronounced and recognizable to me at the time, lack of Uh, Mm self-esteem. There were, there were teachers who really needed the affirmation of their students to a degree that was unhealthy or needed attention from students of the opposite sex or needed to feel powerful. And I look back on them now and I'm like, Oh man, they were like 30, 35 years old. And lost and maybe still lingering in their own adolescence, which, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, these things can linger. <laughs> they can, they can take their yeah. time. They can take time to resolve. I'm not sure if I'm out. I mean, I think I'm out of it now at 44, but, um, I, I'm certainly more of a late bloomer than the other way around. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I think these, I think that, I think that period of time lingers for everybody. Like I said, like, I, I mean, not in the sense of like, everyone's mired in their adolescent drama. Like hopefully we're not, but you know, when people have asked me like, how did you, how did you sort of like, you know, get back into this mindset when you were writing this book? I was like, how, (laughs) like, how have I ever gotten out of it? Like, I just didn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I was like, it's not hard for me to remember what it was like to be that age at all. Do you have like, good, do you have good recall? Do you have like good like like um, specific memory recall, or is it more like just like that intuitive memory of like how it felt? Both, yeah, both. I mean, I, I I both. I think maybe the 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 latter a little more. A really really strong, you know, recollection of just like the emotional experiences of being that age. 
but yeah, there's a lot of specific stuff I remember too and misremember, but you know, misremembering is just as powerful, sometimes more powerful. You know, even if you remember it wrong, it's still like stamped on your memory and affecting you in some way. So how did you wind up uh, in a performing arts school? Can you talk like a little bit about your childhood? It sounds like you were interested in like some, like what kind of performance was it that, that uh, you were, you were doing back then? Oh my God. It was such a, it was such a weird, actually anomalous event in my life. I was in a, um, I was in a drama program like these students. Uh, I, all I can say is like, it's a testament to the strangeness of adolescence and to the, you know, to the crazy ferment of like, you know, identity formation that I ever stumbled into a drama program because I was not a performer. I was not an extrovert. I still am neither of those things. Um, I was a bookish, awkward, dorky, non-athletic child who read a lot and um, dreaded, you know, dreaded gym class and got chosen last for dodgeball and stuff like that. All those classic you know, wore glasses and was just, just a loser, frankly. And for reasons that I really, you know, for, for all of my claims just now being able to remember this period of time, I cannot actually remember what I was thinking when I decided to try um, attending a drama program at a performing arts school. I had cousins who had attended this school um, who are incredibly gifted musicians and um and I really I to this day I love and admire these cousins they're among my favorite people in the world and I loved and admired them then and I was like I want to go to that school like them but I didn't play an instrument and there was a program called media arts which was writing and photography which was the obvious obvious spot for me and in fact one of my beloved cousins who wasn't a musician was in that program. And I don't know why I didn't choose that program. I've no, I just cannot explain it. But I chose drama. I landed in drama. As soon as I got there, I was like, this is such a bad match. I'm so, I was so self-conscious. It was a nightmare. And I fled backstage and became a techie. And I loved that. (laughs) And uh, I loved being backstage. And I think I got really hooked on, the collective enterprise of theater. I still love it. Um, I didn't want to be on stage. I didn't want to perform, but I loved, I loved making costumes and I loved being backstage during a performance. And I loved being at rehearsals. I, you know, I, I, I can still remember how fun that was. It was so much fun. When I got, when I got to college, I went straight to the university theater and almost didn't graduate because I spent too much time, you know, building, building sets and, hanging lights and walking around with a crescent wrench, you know, it's a great world to be in. That's a nice little like social hive, you know, you've got like, like like, like-minded people, uh, you know, artistic people who all want to be in some capacity, like an accessory to storytelling. Exactly. That's so nicely put. And, and, and you can be part of it. Even if you're a shy dork, if you are willing to learn how to use a wrench and it's not the solitary life of the writer yeah it's great so can you sing hell no 
No. Oh my God. <laughs> the worst, it, it, you know, with, within the, within the general mortification of somehow ending up in a performance program when I wasn't a performer was the very specific humiliation of having to sing. And I can't sing. I couldn't then. And I still cannot. Hmm. Yeah. My daughter is nine going on 10 and like musical theater is her thing. And I've, you know, I've said this before, but like neither my wife nor I are in any way theatrical or musical. And yet this is the, you know, she's just latched onto this and there's a part of me that's like, God, I hope, you know, okay, I'm going to support it. But I'm like, I hope like we don't, we're not setting her up for some like heartbreak when she gets into like a high school scenario and they're like auditioning and you've got to have perfect pitch or something because I just, I think a lot of that's genetic though. Maybe you can train it. I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's just, if she like, if she enjoys it, yeah. Let her go. Let, Let it happen. Right. Let it happen. I mean, gosh, I just, I still, I, I love going to, um, I love going to like the musicals that are staged at my kids' schools. I just love it. I love nothing better than hearing kids sing. It's just yeah. so happy and like just lifts my heart. And like a kid who has a really great voice just is such a miracle. Oh, yeah. So cool. And just like how proud, like, like, I don't know if you've had, I mean, surely you've had this experience as a parent, but like, especially when your kid is like up on stage or on some field of play or they're just having their like shining moment when they are like visibly feeling proud of themselves, like, forget it. You're just like, <laughs> talk about a heartbreaker. It's too much. I know. I know. It's so great. Um, well, I hope they get their stage, whatever their stage is are i hope they get them back soon yeah no kidding right i mean like we're doing uh my, my daughter is right now doing over zoom somehow they're going to do a performance of little shop of horrors over zoom which is like maybe the height of zoom industrial you know industriousness wow wow <laughs> you well adapt. you know what got it you gotta adapt i mean that's that's i love it that's great i mean right you might as well beat the alternative you got to try so um <laughs> exactly you, I want to talk to you, like, you, you know, we, we've kind of touched upon your schooling, um, and this was in the Houston area, is that right? Is that where you were, spent your childhood? Uh -huh. Yeah. And then you go through this drama school, and you sort of find your niche, even though it's not necessarily the, like, the perfect, like, hand-in-glove fit uh, for you in terms of your, uh, you know, your skill set or your uh, natural inclinations. Like, you find your niche, like, backstage and in this world of theater and then you go off to college and you said you went immediately to the theater again because it was like familiar, you know, familiar ground and something mm -hmm. that you loved. But when did the bookish writerly side of you start to express itself? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, well, it was never, it was never like far, far away. You know, I, I mean, writing was something I started doing when I was really young, really like, practically in tandem with learning to read. Um, I would write little stories and I was, you know, really into like books and a library and I would make library cards for my own books and make my parents check them out. And, you know, I was, I was really into books and writing and I wrote little stories and um, they were bad and derivative, but, you know, I, I continued doing that throughout high school, even though I wasn't in that media arts program that I've mentioned, I continued being interested in writing and, you know, being sort of the gloomy 
emo teen, like writing self-serious bad stuff that really, thank God, it's mostly lost to the sands of time. Um, and in college, I also, you know, wrote, but it was, it was not, it was never very focused. Um, kind of like on some deep level, I knew that I had a, what do I want to say? I, I kind of instinctively knew how to write. I'm not saying I was a great writer. I'm just saying instinctively that was sort of the mode of expression that was familiar to me. And for that reason, I didn't really cultivate it or give much thought to it, if that makes sense. Because I was always like, oh, yeah, I can write something, but whatever. Like, I'd much rather, you know, I'd much rather do theater. I'd much rather be a graphic artist. I'd much rather make documentary film. You know, I think the fact that writing felt so familiar and reflexive meant I didn't take it that seriously as a vocation, if that makes sense. And um, so even though while I was in college, I wrote stories occasionally and even a couple ended up in literary magazines here and there, I never really focused on it. Um, and it wasn't until after college that, you know, as I was floundering, as you do, you know, like, oh my God, what now? Um, I thought, well, what about writing? Like, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd done more you know, I'd done more sort of focused fiction classes in my last two years of college, and I'd, I'd kind of gotten a little more serious about it, and I'd kind of started to develop a vague sense of how that worked. I was like, oh, you know, people publish things, and first they publish things in magazines, and then they maybe they try to write a book. Like, I started getting, getting the idea, um, but it wasn't until after college that I thought, you know, should I try to pursue this, and if so, how? Like, how do you do that? Um, I didn't know, so I went to grad school. <laughs> the solution to everyone who doesn't really know what to do with themselves. Um, You're here. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, and so yeah, it was it was it was like a slow, like a slow kind of organization in my thoughts of like what to do with this writing tendency that I'd had my whole life. Do you have a writerly parent? Yes and no, you know, um, my mom was, I didn't really see a lot of this. She kind of kept it to herself, but my mom loved books, loves books, uh, loved writing and, and did even go through a period of like writing short stories and reviewing books when I was younger. Um, sort of, she always kept it very close to her chest. You know, she had a, she had worked for an English professor as a, I think like as a typist and, and they'd ended up becoming friends and, and she would send him manuscripts of stories that she was writing and he would send her manuscripts of stories he was writing. And so, you know, I had kind of seen this behavior, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, my mom was always very, uh, like I said, very closed lipped about it. Um, my dad's a mathematician, but his dad, my grandfather was a literary person. And I always sort of knew that like, I didn't really know of what sort I've been learning more about him in recent years, but I was always under the impression when I was growing up that like the literary activity was not shameful. Like I wasn't going to be disowned if I ended up wandering in that direction. Always a positive when you're not going to be disowned. <laughs> for, for yeah. Always a positive, but 
you know, it's, it's funny just cause, um, you know, my dad is a Korean immigrant and I know so many other children of Asian immigrants who have said to me, you know, did you never come under pressure to go to medical school or law school? And like, never, never. My father never, ever, he, he did make no secret of his kind of dream that I would be an astronomer. I think it was his dream. And so he like, he'd bring it up, give me telescopes and it never really, obviously it didn't stick, but it wasn't exactly the same kind of pressure. Yeah, my dad was pressure. I mean, like it, it was a gentle pressure, but my dad, whose father was a first-generation Italian-American, he wanted doctors. One of his sons turned out to be a dentist, but my dad went so far as uh, to like major in microbiology, thinking it was pre-med, but he's like a guy that like faints at the sight of blood. Like it just was never going to happen. Mm, so, yeah, not a good, not a good fit. Yeah, he went in a different direction, but. <laughs> I get it. I mean, if you're, if you're just, uh, you know, getting here and trying to make a go of it and you obviously want your kids to find, find their footing, it seems like a nice, it's like a nice solid thing to do. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. But, but, you know, so I think, you know, all credit to, to both my parents that neither of them ever sort of pushed me in that direction when it, when it became clear that writing was the thing that I was going to pursue. I mean, they were, I think they winced a little bit, you know, in my twenties, they were like, uh, um, but you know, yeah, it was very much like, all right, good luck. I want to, I want to ask you about this because now here you are, you've, you're the winner of the national book award for fiction, which I think to people listening, many of whom are working on books of their own or who might aspire to one day work on a book, they would look at somebody like you and be like, well, that's the pinnacle. It's like, she did it like mic drop, you know? And I think to some extent that's true, like abstractly, like it's a big achievement and it's definitely like a rare air for anybody who writes fiction to find themselves in. Uh, But this is, and forgive me if I'm uh, incorrect here, but this is your fifth book? Yeah. Uh Okay. So five books in, which is a heck of a lot of work. This happens for you. Um, I'm hoping that you might talk about the road that you took to get here and demystify maybe some of it a little bit, if that's the right word, <laughs> um, because, you know, it, it's never simple. And I think I'm guessing, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, there was like a lot of rejection that you had to go through on the way and a lot of maybe self-doubt. Like, can you just talk about the path you took and, um, I don't know, just the, some of the resistance that you might've met along the way so that people can get a clearer sense of the reality of it and maybe draw some inspiration from what has happened for you. Wow. Yeah. Gladly. I mean, that's, it's a, it's a lot. I'm trying to, trying to sort of, trying to sort of figure out what would be most germane. Uh, I mean, you know, five books, like, on the one hand, it feels like a lot. And on the other hand, it, it, I'm sort of like, really, is that all? Um, I'm 51 years old. So in a way, I'm like five books and six decades. Like, it's, yeah, I can think of a lot of writers my age who've been much more productive. But, um, you know, I think I, I think like the main, the main experience I've had of this is just never really finding it um, never really finding it possible to like write anything besides what I wanted to write at any given time. And, um, 
I mean, if I could have figured out like how to write the bestseller that would have whatever, like, you know, landed me in such amazing financial security right now that I wouldn't ever have to teach again. Like, I don't, I don't even know if I would have done it, but I, I had no idea how to do that. Like I never, I guess another thing is like, I've never known how to like write what people wanted or like write what was going to sell or write what was going to do well critically or like I've always just kind of wandered from like the thing that I was really interested in next thing that I was really interested in doing often via long periods of having no idea. My first book, um, you know, I said I went to grad school when I didn't know how to become a writer. I did not find out in grad school, <laughs> largely my own fault. But, you know, I went to grad school with like no clue what kind of writing I wanted to do. Really like kind of looking outward all the time and being like, oh, well, you know, this is the kind of story that's in the New Yorker. I guess I should try to write one of those. Never worked. And and so I, I left grad school without a lot to show for it in terms of product. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really figure out what to do and, and, you know, just had all this material lying around that was interesting to me, but I couldn't make it add up to anything. It was about my dad, who I just mentioned, um, who's a, like I said, an immigrant from Korea, survived the Korean war, came here in the fifties. I'd always been kind of fascinated by his journey from South Korea to the American South. He ended up in Tennessee and, you know, a lot of people who met him had never met an Asian and thought he was some other kind of colored person, but they didn't know what kind, you know, but they'd literally say to, thing, say to him things like, you know, what are you? Where did you come from? <laughs> um, you know, Mars. I was always just, you know, he would tell me these stories that I kind of never could quite believe, but I, but I found them so compelling. And, you know, my first book, eventually after a really long time, I mean, I didn't publish it until I was almost 30, came out of that interest. You know, I just kept being really drawn to his stories and, and partly because it was like a mystery for me, like a mystery I wanted to solve. And, and I think with all my books, all of them have ultimately come out of that same impulse. Like I've become really interested in something that felt urgent to me where I was like, I just want to figure this out. And, um, however long it takes, I'm just interested in trying to figure it out and trying to figure it out through writing about it. And never with any sense of like, will anyone like it? You know, I mean, I think that I've had a lot of doubt, like in between finding a project that was compelling to me because I wanted to understand something, I would flounder, you know, I floundered between every single one of my books. And during that floundering period, I think you tend to be really vulnerable to the idea of pleasing others. And so I'd be like, well, I, I don't know what to do next. Maybe you know, the world likes this. Maybe I'll try to do that. Or the world, the world seems to be really interested in this. Um, but that in the end, those, those efforts never succeeded. Like the books that I finished have always ended up being the books that I wrote because something hooked me, you know what I mean? And, um, so I just think there's been a lot of trial and error if that isn't too vague. And first exercise was a perfect, perfect example of, you know, a book that like, I didn't mean to write, <laughs> I was trying to write a different book and I still haven't finished it and I'm still working on it. It's still going not very well. Um, and I just started kind of 
fooling around with writing these scenes about these students because like I told you at the beginning of our conversation, I got kind of interested in the ways that our attitude about students and teachers have changed since I was a student. Um, and it was something I wanted to figure out. I was like, God, that's wild. You know, mm-hmm. like, like what you were saying about you went to high school and this atmosphere where like your peers were dating your teachers and you would kind of go, oh, okay. And now as an adult, you're like, what the, like, and, and I had the same thought and I was like, what happened? You know, what does it, what does it mean? Um, and that's what trust exercise came out of. So I feel like all my books have been sort of these happy accidents of me ending up stumbling into some, some topic that bugged me, you know, hmm. it bugged me enough that I was like, I just, I kind of need to just stick with this. Um, and along the way, like the path is littered with all sorts of books that I tried that I've tried to write because I thought other people might like them and I haven't finished them. Well, there's a lesson. You know, it's in not that. like I thought, yeah, I feel like, yeah, I mean, it's not like I thought others would, wouldn't like the books that I did write. It's just that the primary, the primary engine was always me being preoccupied, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like, you know, you describe this notion of trying to write to the market and, you know, be predictive about what people are going to want to read and how a book is going to perform. And, um, you know, to it's me, impossible. I, I was going to say, I was going to say, and I think there are people who, there might be people out there who can work maybe in a, especially in like some form of genre fiction or something where there is like a, a, a more reliable market and there can be maybe some kind of formula that you could land on. But to me, just as a matter of personal taste, it feels so bloodless. Like when you describe, you know, following what's of interest to you and that you're passionate about and that's really bugging you and confusing you, like that to me, like that's what I want to read. I want to read somebody who is working idiosyncratically and going deep. And um, I don't know. I don't know how to do it any other way myself. And I think most of the writers I've spoken with on this show are probably of that ilk. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in part, it's just, I t- it takes me a long time to write a book, frankly. And so to be really blunt about it, like, it has to be pretty well under my skin and and still compelling to me for a while, because I'm just not going to finish it. Right. You know, I like, I'm just one of those writers who like, you know, like, just look at the, look at the history. It's taken me at least five years to publish a book every time. And in some cases, longer. So it's like, it, I I just can't stick with something for that long if I'm not, if it hasn't really got its hooks into me. And um, and yeah, writing for the market, I think it's a special skill. And I don't deride it at all. Um, I, if I had a, like I said, if I had a clue how to do it, I'd think about it. But I don't. I really don't. Do you think people can do that in, a, in the realm of literary fiction? Do you think there are people who do that well? I don't know. I think, I think there must be people who do it well, but you know, literary fiction is different from commercial fiction and it is idiosyncratic. And, and I think it, I think in the end it is, it is mostly, you know, um, about, I think readers of literary fiction, if they're any like me, they're always looking for something that, that has a sense of like really authentic voice and sensibility. They're not necessarily, wanting like you know the 
the most suspenseful plot. It's not so much about plot, it's about voice. And so I think in literary fiction, you know, when you have readers who are who are responsive to voice, you tend to have writers who, you know, are working in that idiosyncratic way that ends up kind of resulting in a voice that feels distinctive. So has, uh, you know, being the author of now a National Book Award-winning novel, uh, your fifth book, did it offer us any kind of sense of, uh, like, affirmation? Like, well, you know, I've been following my own instincts, and that was the right thing to do. Like, did it give you did it give you any sense of, uh, not like punctuation, but just, you know, like affirmation? Like, yeah, this is the right. I followed, I followed my nose, and it was the right thing to do, and something about what I'm doing is working? Or is that an overestimation of the impact? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean... Maybe it's an overestimation a little bit because I, I feel like what it what it brought home to me more than anything else was, I mean, winning that award felt to me like like going through the eye of a needle. I was just like, there is a really, for me, strong sense of, I'm not going to say randomness to it, but, you know, I tend to be like an out of sync reader. Like I'm constantly reading the book that I meant to read 10 years ago or the book that I meant to read 30 years ago. I'm not, Me too. I'm Me not, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I just, I, I mean like, yeah, my pandemic reading has been like, I literally read a book that like I bought the copy in college. It's been on my shelf for 30 no. years. I've been reading like, Philip, you know, the, I've been reading like <laughs> Philip Roth, like, like way late. Like I'm yeah. like, wow, this guy's really good. <laughs> oh yeah. He's, he's pretty good. Right. Yeah. I was actually just thinking of him talking about voice, I was like, I was literally going to say, you know, if Philip Roth had worried about the market, but instead Philip Roth was just like, you know what, this is Philip Roth. (laughs) Like, like warts and all. It's like, that's what I love about his work is you're like, I know I'm reading a book by Philip Roth. Right. Like he just, he really, he really was like, this is my voice. Take it or leave it. You know, this is what I'm hung up on. I'm going to write about it. I'm maybe going to write about it too many times in certain cases, but like, um, but yeah, just in terms of the award, like what I, what I meant by being out of sync is like, I'm almost never managing to read the notable books of a year in that year. I'm always behind, but with the national book award, you know, being a finalist was such a huge honor. And I was so just flipped out by that happening um, that I really made an effort to read as many of the nominated books as I could. And I think it, that experience was so humbling that it did ultimately feel like, you know, there's, there's, come on. I mean, these awards are great. I'm thrilled. Thank you world. You know, it, it's obviously only to the good, but there is something very random about it. So many great books came out last year. So many great books. So many great books are coming out this year. So I did feel like I passed through the eye of the needle where I was like, wow, that happened. I don't know how. Um, and in that sense, like, I can't, I can't view it as like, finally, the affirmation I deserve. Do you know what I mean? Because I just, there's so many books and so many writers who deserve that same affirmation. Um, and, you know, there's, only, there's so few awards mm-hmm. to go around. Um, and I spent so much of my career kind of inuring myself against being hung up on awards, you know, and telling my students things like, you know, awards are, are great, but like that, that is not, that is not the affirmation. 
right? Like if you wait for the affirmation of an award, you could wait your whole career and you, you could, and it wouldn't mean that you weren't a really great writer. So yeah, it was just a really nice thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, if any, if nothing else, I think it's, you can use it as encouragement to continue, <laughs> you know, like, okay, on it some, on, on some level, continue, this is working. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, you know, one of the nicest things that too, that I'll add is, and this I've really loved is it's brought readers that didn't know my work at all to previous books of mine. And that's been really great. That's really, really nice to see like older books of mine get picked up by people who are like, wow, I'd never heard of you. Uh, now I've read this book and I'm going to go back and I'm like, yes, please go back. So that's, that's been affirming too that like, you know, the previous books are there. That's kind of a great thing about publishing books is that, you know, then they're there. Mm-hmm. Even if they were published 22 years ago, like my first book, I'm like, still there. And still I'm alive. still thrilled. Yeah, still thrilled if somebody wants to pick it up and read it. It's just just as wonderful so for me. So you mentioned that you're working on uh, a new book. You sort of said it's kind of a mess or it's in that kind of early phase where you're still, still sort of figuring it out. Um, can you give any like any kind of broad hints about what it's about? Oh God, it's not, it's not new. Cause it's, this is my old book. Um, I'm still struggling to write this book. That's about my father's side of my family. Um, my father, I mentioned emigrated from Korea in the fifties after the war. And my very first novel was about that. And it, I kind of, um, like once you go back and do a bunch of historical research, I feel like my experience of it is all you discover is all the stuff you don't know about whatever came before. And then you're like, Oh, but I don't know about the stuff that came before that. And so I feel like I've been going backwards in research ever since that first book. And, and now I'm really interested in my grandfather, the person that I described as having been literary and sort of, I guess, um, making it okay. <laughs> in my family for me to be literary because, you know, people can look back and go, oh, yeah, well, the grandfather was literary. So, yeah, all right. Um, he was an interesting figure, and I've been trying to write about him for, like, just ages. And I'm back to it, you know, trying to figure out, like, is this a novel, which it has never succeeded in being, or is it maybe not fiction? Hmm. I don't know. Okay. I know. Crazy, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, no, I feel like that gives us a good uh, a good idea of – what it, you know, what it's going to be about, whatever form it takes. And I am, uh, I'm grateful to you for spending the time to talk with me. Congratulations on the success, uh, of trust exercise. Congrats on the national book award. Um, Thanks. stay, stay safe in Brooklyn, uh, be well and, uh, best of luck on this new thing. Thank you, Brad. Same to you in LA. May we, may we meet in the real world someday soon. All right, everybody, there you go. That is Susan Choi, and her novel is called Trust Exercise. It is available now in trade paperback from Henry Holt. You can find Susan online at susanchoi.com. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. The book, once again, is called Trust Exercise. It's a novel, the winner of the National Book Award for Fiction in 2019. Go get your copy. If you like this program and you want to support it, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. 
If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget this podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get the app. So I don't know who's going to be on next. Everything got turned upside down a little bit by uh, all that has happened. So we're going to play it by ear. I feel like that is in order. And I hope that last week's, uh, you know, brief monologue in lieu of a traditional episode, I hope that struck the right note. I was worried about it. What happens is that, uh, you know, I think I consume too much information. I'm reading too much online and taking in too many takes, you know? Like one website says, uh, be silent and just listen. And I think to myself, oh my God, I just need to shut up and listen. And then I'll go to another website and it will be like, silence equals violence. And I'll think to myself, holy shit, I got to talk. So I did, uh, you know, I did something I think that falls somewhere in the middle, a 10 minute uh, monologue. I hope it worked out. So, all right, okay. (laughs) 